Morning. I'll introduce myself real briefly. I'm Matt Turhune. I've been a member at Second for about 20 years. I uh, met my wife here. All my kids have been baptized here. We've been married almost 17 years. I've got a 15-year-old son, an 11-year-old daughter, and a 3-year-old daughter. Uh, I'm an elder here, and I've taught Rocky's class in this room uh, off and on over the last few years, and now I'm teaching the Emmaus class. And yeah, I don't know if Sandy did this as a way to make me feel better or worse up here, but and I don't know if this is always up here, but until you stand at the podium, you don't know that they put a panic button up here. I can't see any cord attached to it, so it may just be for fun, but um, you know, if things go really bad, someone run up and slap it, and maybe Sandy will poof you know, out of... I kept hoping maybe there was like a teleprompter that would pop up and, you know, give me what to say. So, um, you know, teaching amen for me is a real honor and it's really coming full circle. And I'll tell you that when it started, um, they were very gracious to put a couple of young guys. I, I don't feel so young anymore, but at the time, um, I think I must have been 31. Anyway, um, I know Pat Nelson and I were on the committee and I can't remember who else, but there were several guys our age. And my responsibility in putting together the Bible study was to uh, choose the logo and the name. And um, I think we were there just because they knew how hungry we had been really nagging Rocky for something like this, for a way for the, uh, the pastors of the church to really give themselves to the men of the church and teach us. And so anyway, we were on the committee and uh, my responsibility was to name it. And I thought all the really great names had been taken. We couldn't do the Emmaus Walk and... You know, we had some other ideas. So I had three of the worst names you've ever, you know, heard when we went to sit down and, and go over it. And right as they got to me, I got to giggling, thinking about, I don't know if you remember the A-team, uh, you know, with Mr. T. And uh, so I got tickled thinking of that. And I thought, well, I'll say something really stupid first, and then maybe it'll make my other names look better. And so I said, we could be like the A-team, we'll be the A-men. And, uh, and I think it was Brian Nern that said, wow, that's great. And I went, yeah, it is. <laughs> And, uh, and I started widening up the piece of paper and, you know, sticking it in my pocket. So anyway, I guess it's better to be lucky than good. And uh, we'll hope that that luck keeps running this morning. Um, and my last thought before we dive into the scripture is that Sandy, being as organized as he is, assigned this topic to me last August, which one is way too long to think about any one particular topic. And uh, two, when I saw what the topic was at the time, it didn't seem nearly as scary as it began to feel as the months went by. Our topic this morning is, is wealth meaningless? Now, in August, that wasn't nearly as difficult a question as it became in September and October. And, um, and so my answer for you this morning, and you can go on home, is it's only half as meaningful as, as it was a year ago. Sandy, being the wise person that he is, just knew that this was a great week for him to be out of town. Um, if you've got your new Geneva Study Bible, which I think is the official Bible of Amen Bible Study, uh, page 1039 will put you at Ecclesiastes 5, uh, verse 8. And I will go ahead and read the scripture. Probably the best thing I'll do all morning is read you the Bible. And uh, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, 12. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them uh, both are others still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. 
this too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that he, when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He can take nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain since he tools for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Then I realize that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the, days, during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives him any, any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is a meaningless, a, grieving, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists is, is, has already been named, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? Now, I want to start talking about this with telling you about my favorite commercial on TV. And I'm sure you've seen this because it's been running for several years now. Um, it's the commercial where, and it's for some sort of financial planning type thing. And uh, the guy's walking into a stadium with his grandson. And, you know, and the, the funniest part is, is how, you know, very fit and put together and well-dressed he is. And he's, you know, he's coming in with his son. And they, they get to the place in the stadium where you can either go down to the box seats or up to the, you know, like the, the cheap seats. And they flash a little sign up, and it says, where will you be sitting? And, so, and they, they show you the choices. And my initial reaction to that uh, commercial was just how frustrated it made me. And I'm not saying this is nothing about financial planning or anything like that, but the message underneath it is, is wouldn't that be the life? Isn't that what we want? Shouldn't this be your goal? Don't you want to sit in the best seats? Don't you want to give your family the best of everything? Isn't that what it's about? I mean, let's really work hard and make all the right decisions so that we can get the best seats in the house. And I don't know about you, but 
that's a dangerous message to throw out in front of me. For one, as I go to Tiger basketball games, and by the way, if any of you have box seats and you don't want to use them, feel free to let me know. This isn't a comment about box seats. It's about the overall mindset. Uh, I'll give you my address later. It's not the overall, it's the overall mindset that says that everything has to be the best. I have to have only this and, and, and this, you know, my car has to be the best, my house has to be the biggest. It's the mindset that's underneath this idea of where will you be sitting as if that's the measure of a life well lived, is where you're going to get to sit with your kids one day. And so what we begin to see is as you watch commercials these days and as you think about where we are as a culture, and it's important to see this as we talk about the meaning of wealth, what we see is that we're being trained to have expectations. There's always a buildup now. There's never an event that just stands on its own or that you go and just see what happens. It's got to be the biggest. It's got to be the best. I mean, you know, how often you see, don't miss it. You don't want to miss it. I mean, you can't, you can't listen to the radio that they don't give you some teaser to get you through the commercial and hear what they're going to say next. You know, there's always got to be a little more, a little something more, always raising the, the bar. And so what we've been trained to is to be discontent. The culture's taught us that you need this, you need that. It's that idea of, man, I need those box seats. Oh, I need that car. Boy, if I had that car. You know, it's something I'm having to train my children through as they see, uh, as they watch TV or as they, as they just operate in the world. You can't get away from it. It's to begin to see the message underneath what they're hearing and to see how it's influenced them. The most frightening part of it, and this is free because it's not about wealth, but it's to train my son that the pictures he sees like in beer ads and something of these women, the world's training him to have a certain expectation of what a woman should look like. And so I'm training him to look for a godly woman and they're training him to look for whatever. And, and you begin to realize the expectations that have been put in and the, and the discontentment because it, there's this constant raising of the bar and, and, and of expectations and, and of need. You know, the things that we want now have become needs, and we, we've got a certain level now of what we consider to be sort of the bare minimum of what life should look like. And so it's important for us to see how we've been trained. Screwtape put it this way in Screwtape Letters. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap on the altar of the future every real gift which is offered them in the present. That's a frightening thing to read because what we see in our culture now is, you know, there used to be the idea of delayed gratification. You worked really hard, you did the right thing, and you waited for the things that you needed, the things that you could afford, the things that you ought to do. You, you understood that there was a certain amount of work that had to be put in. You, uh, this will, you know, especially the older you are in here, this is what I keep hearing. You know, now people don't want a job, they want a position. And they show up thinking they're supposed to be running the place. And so I'm seeing people laughing now. This must hit a chord. Um, you know, they expect to just walk in and run the place instead of earning the right to be heard and earning their way into the position. And yet now, instead of having this idea of delayed gratification, we have this idea of putting everything off for the future by work, work, work now. And, and because I've got to have this and I've got to have this and I've got to have this. And so it's been a twisting of the goals. Now, instead of having the uh, the freedom to do what we ought, we want the freedom to do what we like. And so now, as you see yourself in this culture, I want you to see how much we've been trained into that mindset. And it leads us to the first point that, that the teacher is telling us here in Ecclesiastes is that the love of wealth makes money an idol. Anything that we look to for God for satisfaction becomes an idol. 
Anywhere that we look, no matter what it is, whether it's power, all the things that the teacher works through in, in Ecclesiastes are all things that have become idols in place of God. And so I have there that now the American dream is, instead of this idea of doing what we ought, it's this idea of doing what we like. And so the American dream is, there's been a real subtle shift, or maybe not so subtle, from the idea of hard work and opportunity so that you can live life, you know, live the best life that you're able to now having an expectation of doing what you like and that, that now instead of just, instead of letting life come to us and working hard through it, there's this idea that if I really had, I mean, I saw a lottery commercial last night. I wanted to jump through the television where the guy's printing big checks and he's the big check company. Have you seen this? Because, you know, and we've given away three and a half million dollars and you go, you know, where does it come from? You know, it, this mentality, and, and you know, one of the one of the lottery commercials is the guy gives his his brother the boat he's always wanted. You know, because this and and that's great if you can give your brother a boat, go for it. You know, I, I, that, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying the mentality underneath it is if we could just have one more thing, if we could just build it up a little more, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you love to have the money to give every? Instead of asking the question, you know, what if you don't ever get win the lottery? What can you give your brother? What can you give the people around you that would that would give them meaning? That would that would show them your love? It doesn't have to be a boat. And so the American dream is. That maximum resources and opportunities with minimum investment and responsibility. I mean, that's what we see across the board now is how much can I pile up and have so that I can retire early, play golf every day, go do whatever. I mean, that's, wouldn't that be the life? I could have the box seats. In a book called The Faith That Endures, talking about persecution of Christians around the world, uh, the guy begins the book talking about interviewing a house church pastor in China. And they begin to talk about the persecution that the house church has been under and what it means to him. And he says, but you realize, you know, that you're being persecuted too. Here's the quote. Wherever you go in this earth, you will be seduced by a false prophet or coerced by a beast into worshiping some idol that's not God. That is apocalyptic reality. Your worship is what you put your energy into. The only difference between you and us is that here it happens so brutally we saw it so clearly. Where you live, it happens so subtly you can't see it at all. And I find this to be true of myself. I'll go through, and you know, you know how it is. It's just the tyranny of the urgent. You begin to take care of this thing and that thing and this thing that's got to be done. And then you look up and a week's past and you realize that some of the decisions you made along the way were just the accepted thought process of the culture, and you never step back for a moment to question what it is you were doing or how you were doing it, and you just realize that you're just drifting along the, with the flow of everything that's going on around you. You know, I can remember when, you know, just being idealistic, and we just got married, and there were things that we just weren't going to do, and we thought we were so noble. You know, all we wanted, we lived in a one-bedroom, I mean, a one-bathroom house, and we had a car that had two doors. And as we had kids, we thought, wow, we're so humble. What we really want is just two toilets and four doors. And we will have it made. You know, we won't have to climb in the back seat to do the car seat, you know. And what we realized was, you know, we look up 10 years later and we realize now what we've got isn't enough. And we, oh, if we could just, you know, we start living for these milestones. Oh, if we could just get to this point, get this paid off, do this, then life's going to be great. And so we've been sucked into the idol. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says it clearly. You cannot serve both God and money. And see, here's the, the bottom line, is that you're going to serve something. 
We're never given the option through the Bible of saying that, you know, freedom is not being able to do whatever it is you want. Freedom is being able to worship the thing that you were supposed to in the first place. You're going to worship something. The question is what it is. What do you, where is your energy going to go? So let's begin to look at some of these points and see what does it look like when money becomes our idol? What is the teacher telling us? The first in verses 8 and 9 is that it breeds oppression. I don't think this is very hard for us to imagine these days. All you have to do is read a newspaper and see that all around the world there are horrible instances of injustice and oppression. And then you can look locally, and if you've gotten your latest property tax notice, you can see that you're being brutally oppressed and there's no justice. Um, if, if it went up as much as mine did. Um, because it, you know, it's regardless of the economic or political system, we want to look at capitalism and say this is the way it ought to be done, and yet we still see the oppression and the injustice within our own system. And why is that? It's because of the people make up the system. All the systems look great on paper, and then the problem is that you've got to plug people into them, and the minute you put fallen people into any system, it's automatically broken. And so don't be surprised when you see oppression and injustice because that's who we are. This is what people are. And the problem is, is really, we, can, we tend to point around and say that's the problem instead of seeing the problem in our own heart, seeing how we've bought into the system. So love of wealth, brings, love of money, money is an idol, breeds oppression. It becomes an idol. Whoever loves money never has money enough. You know, that's really kind of the language of addiction, isn't it? Just to need a little bit more, and then you find out that that didn't quite do what you thought, so you need a little bit more, and that didn't quite fill it. And then, we, we, you know, it's that constant ratcheting up of the pressure. We just need a little more to get us there. It commodifies relationships. Now, spell check tells me that commodify is not a word. I didn't know this. Uh, Marsha, when I sent her the notes, called and asked me if that was really the word I meant because spell check put the little line under it. And uh, I said, yeah, I guess I made up a word. She said, that's okay, Sandy does it all the time. So uh, <laughs> apparently I'm okay. My favorite made up word is when I was teaching on prayer, my daughter asked me if that was like humitating. And, uh, and I thought, humitating? Yeah, that's a great word. Um, so commodify, to make something a commodity. Money as an idol makes our relationships into commodities. Uh, if you read the language there, it says, as, good increase, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And so, you know, you think about if you have money, if you have wealth, it tends to attract people who want wealth. And so they're coming to you now for something you have instead of who you are. So the relationship becomes more of a transaction. How little can they put into you in order to get what you have? And unfortunately, as we begin to look at money as the measure of who we are, we begin to approach other people that way. Whether it's in business or personal, we tend to look at them at how little can I put into this person and get out of them what I want. And so our relationships become commodified. It creates anxiety. You know, there's just a certain physical level of, of information here. If you've worked really hard all day digging a ditch or, you know, emptying the garbage or doing whatever it is you have to do, you're tired. You're going to sleep at night whether you like it or not. But the rich man, it says it permits him no sleep. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, is if you've gotten to a point where you don't have to work, you've got a certain amount of energy that's just not spent. And then the other part of that is, is you're sitting around worrying about all this stuff that you got all day and what you're going to do with it and how you're going to take care of it. And how do you keep from, in the, you know, in this market, how do you keep from losing it? And so you tend to get anxious. You, you know, your brain gets to whirling. You can't make it quit. 
That's what money does when it's an idol. It becomes our master. You know, the, one of the hardest things to read through here and figure out was it says wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. And I kept trying to think, harm me a little, okay? How, how in the world can hoarded wealth harm someone? I mean, it's just sitting there, right? How does that work? But what you begin to see is, is that what he's saying is what type of person hoards? It's the type that's looking at that money and his security. I, I thought of Lord of the Rings, you know, the golem, it's his precious. You know, is, is your money, is, your, is, is the things that you've built and worked for and everything, has it taken a place instead of becoming a tool to help everyone and yourself live the life that you ought? Has it gone from being that to being something that you value so much that, that it becomes a thing that you really pour your energy into? It's no longer a tool to get somewhere. It becomes a thing itself. Uh, in a book called The Same Kind of Different as Me, if you've read it, it's a terrific book. It's about a, a wealthy art collector who, through his wife, develops a relationship with a homeless man. And as they begin to get to know each other and he be they begin to learn each other's stories, one day he pulls out a wad of keys and he gets ready to start the car or do whatever. And, and the homeless man says to him, boy, that's a lot of keys. He said, uh, do you own something for every one of those keys? And he says, well, uh, yeah, I do. And he says, well, I just wonder, do you own those things or do those things own you? You know, I stopped reading that book for a second. Boy, that's a great question. You know, and it's a question we all need to begin to ask. Does it own us or do we own it? But when money's our idol, that's where we're headed. We're headed to have the things that we own master us. Verse 14, it increases our risk. It says, wealth lost through some misfortune. Okay, work with me a little here. Imagine that. You, know, you could do everything right, do everything you're supposed to, and yet, because of all the circumstances around, you lose half of what you have made. It's possible. Or maybe it's that the type of person who hoards wealth and who looks at it as an idol is the kind of person when he's got to have a little more, maybe he's willing to take just a little extra risk. Maybe he might sign up for a loan that's not the best loan that he could really get. Maybe he would give a loan to someone who wasn't qualified for it because he could get a commission. Maybe that's how it worked. And so that we begin to lose everything we've worked for because we take those extra risks and we do a little bit more than we ought to. And so through misfortune, we've lost everything we have. Verses 15 and 16, it requires everything of us. It says, what does he gain since he tolls for the wind? See, this is the nature of a false god. It begins to require a little more of you each time and it ups it in a little bit. And as you, it begins to ask you for more and more of who you are until you've laid out everything that you have in front of it and you've hit rock bottom and you realize that that, that idol was never going to give you all the things it promised in the first place. See, at the beginning, you thought if you had the money, wow, you know, I could take care of my family and we could travel a little and we could do this and we could do that. And you had all these promises and, you know, oh, and if something bad happens, we'll be able to take care of it. And then the further you got in and the more you built up, the more you begin to realize, wow, that's really not how it works. Maybe it just needs a little more. And so you get sucked in and you begin to pour yourself out and you don't even know you've done it. And then you look up years later and you realize you've just sold yourself away for nothing. You get to the end and you see that you've told for the win, that there's nothing you can hold in your hand that you've earned that you can take with you. And so in the end, verse 17 tells us with great frustration, affliction and anger, that, it does, that in the end, this idol is going to disappoint you. There's no way around it. 
that wealth ultimately cannot satisfy our hearts. It, it will never bring us the peace and the joy that we're meant for. Now, I'm going to give you a really, this is, this is like a kindergarten level example, but I think it makes the point. We have, uh, we have had a series of, of VCRs and DVDs in my house. This is because I've had small children in the house. Now, my son never did this, and this is not a kind, you know, we can be proud. My son never did it. Um, but my daughters, because they're nurturers and, and because they like to nest, uh, decided that a VCR was just a wonderful thing to nest with. And so at different points in time, we have found inside the VCR Pop-Tarts, acorns, stickers, marbles. You know, I don't know if they thought it was hungry and, hey, they like Pop-Tarts. Uh, there's no telling. And I can tell you that my three-year-old is just a nester. And if there's a, a box or, a, you know, a, a cubby hole, she's going to be nesting and, you know, sorting and putting things in it. And so, you know, it makes the VCR not work, Right. Because because the VCR was meant for VCR tapes. It wasn't meant for Pop-Tarts. Now, I say this to say that we weren't meant for money and we weren't meant for any of the other things that are mentioned in Ecclesiastes. The only way that the VCR can really experience its true VCR-ness and be the VCR it was meant to be and be a happy, peaceful, joyful VCR is to have a VCR tape stuck inside it. And so for you and I, the message there is, it's really simple, isn't it? And it's the dumbest thing you've ever heard. And yet it's true. The, the one thing that's going to make us who we're meant to be, and that what he tells us right here is, is the only way we're going to find true contentment and true, true peace is to take, take the owner's manual out and see what we were meant for in the first place and do that. And to begin to see that the things that we thought were ends were really means. They were tools that were supposed to point us to him. And the giveaway here is in verse uh, 18, he tells you that it's good for a good and proper to, for a man to eat and drink, to find satisfaction in his labor, for this is his lot. What is he telling you? That's what you were made for. And the sooner you figure that out, the, the sooner you're going to feel good about your labor and good about your money and, and how you use it. So if it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink, then our wealth is to be used. He didn't say it's good and proper for you to sit on top of a big pile of it and, and dole it out. He's saying, this is what you're to do. You're going to work really hard, and then you're going to use it. And then the other trick here is, is to find satisfaction in your labor because wealth is to be earned. So this is what we were made for. And if you look through the Bible and you think about the idea, the idea of the Sabbath, what you see is this idea that there's a rhythm to life that we were built for. You, were, you and I were made to have this rhythm of work and then rest and then work and then rest. And the more we get away from that pattern of what we're supposed to be, the more frustration, the more affliction we're going to find, the more we're going to become enslaved to our idols because we're never taking the time to step back and look at what it is we're doing in the first place. To be quiet before God for a minute and ask him to show us where we're doing it and where we're not. And so... When you see that what he's saying here is, is it's good to eat and drink, it's good to labor. He's saying, this is what I built you for in the first place. And so this is what I want you to do. Now think about how we've changed that. The idea now is work, 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 work so that you can rest, 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 rest. The, if I could really work or if I could come up with the one idea or the one thing that's really going to, you know, then make my fortune so that I can quit. You know, we were just talking about at the table right before I stood up, this idea of, you know, if Think of how many people you know that the minute they retired, 
they got sick and died or something terrible happened. And I'm not saying retirement's bad. What I'm saying is, is that if you've lived the kind of life where you've never paid attention to anything but your job, and then you go to retire, then the minute that's taken away from you, you don't know what to do with yourself in the first place. So it's a question of balance up to that point. And then when we, when, when there is retirement or there is a point at which you've got enough money, you don't have to do anything. You're supposed to find something productive to do with it and something productive to do with yourself because that's what you were made for. In the Garden of Eden, before everything got screwed up in the first place, he was managing the garden. Bad news. If you don't like work, you're going to hate heaven. It's not a big golf course. Yeah, it's what we were made for. We were made for that. When, when, when the kingdom of heaven comes back down, there will be things to do. Aren't you glad we're not going to sit around and play harps? I mean, it, it, there's something to do there. And that's what he's telling us here, that we, were meant for, that we were meant to live life a certain way. And the further we get away from it, the more the idols are going to take over our lives. And he says in, in verses 19 and 20 that, the secret of contentment is to accept the lot, to be happy in the gift that God's given you. And you, know, you think about, wouldn't you like to be the kind of person that, that this could be said of you? He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Because contentment is a gift from God. First Timothy 6, 6 through 10, this is a terrific. Paul tells us that Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That could be like the theme verse for the last year, couldn't it? You know, isn't that where we are as a culture that we made a decision somewhere along the way that the most important thing we could do was build up as much wealth as possible. And we began to lose sight of all the things that, you know, that made us who we ought to be. And as a church, we've just jumped right in with it. Instead of standing out from the crowd and, and people could look to the church and see how we use our money and how we use our resources and how we do our business, we begin to look like everyone else. And so that's the challenge here is for you and I to step back and begin to find our contentment in what God's given us and, 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 to, and to look to him and, and to shake off all the idols that the world's offered us and really, to really look to him and say, I'm going to live life the way that you that you've meant for me to live it. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, this is a funny thing, and I hope I'm, you know, we've got some biblical scholars here. I hope I'm doing this justice. But as I've thought a lot about this verse over the years, this idea of where your treasure is and where your heart is. See, I thought it was the other way around. Where my heart was is where my treasure would be. Whatever I fell in love with would be my treasure. And yet he's reversed the order and he says, whatever it is you treasure is the thing that your love is going to go into. And what he's telling us is we have a choice in this. Jesus is saying you've got a choice to choose what it is you're going to treasure, to choose what it is you're going to pour your energy into. I can remember going to Promise Keepers way back whenever and a guy named Ron Blue saying, if you show me your checkbook, I'll show you what you believe. It's a frightening thing to think about. You know, if, I, if, you were to, if I were to open up my finances in front of you, what would you decide that was the most important thing to me? 
So love of wealth makes money an idol. Enjoyment of wealth is a gift of God. And the teacher goes on to show us maybe some case studies, if you want to think of it that way, of what does it look like when someone pursues wealth. And the conclusion he draws here is that the pursuit of wealth results in misery. As you think about pursuit of wealth, what I want you to see in this first six verses here, it talks about a guy who's got everything he could ever imagine. He's got wealth. He's got a big family. He's got health. He's got everything he ever wanted, and yet he's miserable. And it goes to the point to say he's so miserable he'd be better off dead. Now, the catch to that verse is, is that one of the giveaways in it is it says he doesn't get a proper burial, which tells you that his family... The proper burial was to come from a, a family that adored the person that was that was being buried and so that the burial became a celebration of who they were. And it says he doesn't even get that. And so what we see here is the type of person that's... Um, that's when, when money is their idol, what happens is, is that when wealth becomes our end, then all the things that should be ends become means. So that now, instead of all these things doing what they ought to do... See, anything that you have that's a good gift is meant to point you back to the giver. Whether it's a beautiful sunset, a great movie, a good book, a relationship, uh, your marriage, your children, all of these things are meant in, in their goodness and, and in your enjoyment of them meant to point you back to the giver. So that as you look at the sunset, you go, wow, imagine a God that could create that. As you hear a, a great piece of music, you think, oh, you know, someday I'm going to hear that song the way it was really meant to be played. It's just a hint of heaven. And yet, when we begin to set up idols in place of God, what we find is, is that all those things now become tools to get what we really want, which is wealth. You know, you want to put an unbelievable burden, and, and this applies to everything. If you make marriage your idol, put a burden on your wife of making her be your Jesus. That your salvation has to come from the happiness of your marriage or from the success of your children. Do that one. Make your success be on your children's performance and see how they feel about it. If that's your measure. And so as we see wealth as a measure, what we see is now I don't approach you as you're just enjoying you for who you are. I begin to look at you for how, like the business contact that you could be or the job that you might give me or the way I might get you to, to arrange something for me to, to get a, you know, a, a better job or a raise or something. I begin to negotiate with you in a sense that turns all of my relationships into business transactions. That's what's happened to this man here. He's miserable because all the things he was supposed to enjoy now just become another tool in his pouch to get what it is he wants. And he tells us that that type of misery is worse than death. A selling of the soul that robs us of enjoyment of, the, of having a good family, of having good health. He's lost sight of what those things are. And so as an idol, money brings us misery. And as a goal, it brings us futility. This longing for wealth destroys us and it makes us... You know, look at the language here. When he says that it becomes an insatiable appetite. Not to get political here, but I, you know, that was a description used to Bill Clinton. Someone said he's nothing but an appetite. You know, imagine that that's who you've become so that you can no longer enjoy any of these things. Uh, actually, uh, this definition that I have here of decadence is one by, of all people, given by Bono of the, of the group, musical group U2. And he said that decadence is when we can no longer enjoy the good things that we have. 
That's a pretty damning explanation of what decadence is. Because, see, I don't think any of us in this room, if you ask us, are we decadent? None of us is going to say, yeah, I'm decadent. We think about people rolling around in the gutter and doing whatever. And, you know, I'm not decadent. And yet decadence is not enjoying the good things that we have. And that's the person that's being described here. It says, uh, the better what the eye sees than the rubbing of the appetite. So he's saying whatever it is that's in front of him, he can't enjoy it anymore because there's always a little something more that he needs. And that's what we've been trained to as a culture is to say that, you know, there's always something that's new and improved and just a little better in version 1.4. And, you know, my iPod's no good that I bought a year ago because now they got an eye touch. And, you know, my phone's no good because I got to have this one. And, you know, we've just got to have the latest of everything. And there's this constant feeling of, boy, if I just got to that next step, then, boy, then I'd have it made. Then I could just stop and enjoy life. And what he tells us here is that, that, that once we get caught in that mindset that we become a roving appetite, we just never quite get to that point. Here's the way I think of it. Uh, a friend of mine was teaching on a topic much like this, and uh, he had his Starbucks coffee up on the podium as he was teaching. And so one of the guys came up after the lesson, and he said, you know, you could have taken that four bucks you paid for Starbucks and you could have given it to someone who's out serving the poor and feeding the poor. You could have probably fed a whole family today. You know, try to make him feel guilty and call him out on it. And so he was asking me, he said, yeah, I hadn't really thought it is, you know, what do you think about that? And I said, here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with getting a cup of Starbucks coffee. The problem is, is that when it always has to be a cup of Starbucks coffee, that you're the kind of guy that ha- can only have the best cup of coffee. And you can only have the best car and you can only have the best shirt and you can only have the best pair of shoes. That when you get caught up in that mentality that you've got to have everything the best. That's decadence. Because you've lost sight of what it is that's important and you've lost sight of an appreciation for the cup of coffee. It's no longer, wow, a really great cup of coffee. It's of course. This is just how I roll. You know, I'm sorry, I'm, I have a 15-year-old son. For the rest of you, it means that's how I live. That's my lifestyle. <laughs> got to keep current. Hey, you know, I'm losing cool points all the time. I got to do what I can. I'm really disappointed Lecrae's not here this morning because if I could have told my kids I was teaching Lecrae major cool points, I could roll for like a week on that just on having taught Lecrae. And so in the end, wealth as an idol leaves us unanswered questions. He asks these great questions, and really, aren't these, these are sort of like the, the big questions. When he says, what is, what, whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known, he's sort of saying, well, then who am I? What was I meant for? No one contend with one who is stronger than he. And it's this realization that, It's sort of coming to the end of it and going, wow, I'm not God. Just coming to the realization that for all the things that you thought you could do and this, this, you know, that you were going to, you know, be the captain of your own fate, right? And what he's saying is, is, you know, I can't contend with one that's stronger than me. In the end, I, I realize I'm just butting my head against a wall, that I'd better go back about 12 verses and see that there was a way I was meant to live and that as much as I fight the designer and as much as I fight the way I was put together, if I would just accept my lot and find joy in my work, then that would be the answer to this question. The more the words, the less the meaning. That's just supply and demand, isn't it? That's the age we live in. We've got more information than we ever had and we don't have any idea what to do with it. 
and it means less and less because you don't know who to listen to and who to trust and who caused the problem over the last year and who did what. You know, no one really knows for certain anymore. And so he's saying, you know, I, I thought that if I could get enough knowledge, then I could control the world around me and I know what to do with it. And I, you know, then I'd be in charge and then I'd be captain of my own fate. And yet that fell apart, too. And he ends with this conclusion for who knows what good what is good for a man in life? Who can tell him what's going to happen under the sun after it's gone? So he ends up just throwing his hands up in the air and saying, who am I? What was I meant for and where, what's going to happen next? Which is actually a great place to be. If you don't know already, you got to get there first to find the real answer, to really see what, you, what it is you need. And so as we look at how do we find answers for those questions, Let's look at 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Here's what Paul tells us. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's our answer. What he's telling you is, as we come to the end of it and you see the failure of the idol that you've set up before you, put your hope in God because he's given you everything that you need for enjoyment. He doesn't say he might. He doesn't say if he does. He's saying he's given you everything you need to enjoy life. He's given you everything for your enjoyment. So as we see it, again, we come back to that principle of of every gift pointing us back to the giver. And when we live that way, then then our hope is is in God. And what that does is only a heart that's thankful for what it has can turn around and give it back away. Uh, There's a quote that I had in there earlier that uh, Cal Thomas talking about wealth is best used when it's a river and not a reservoir. And so the question then is, what kingdom is it that you're building? Because if you're building up your own kingdom, it becomes a reservoir. It's something you're drawing out of for your own use. But when it's a river and it's just passing through you, you, you get it, you take what you need out of it, and then you send the rest on to do something else, to do something bigger than yourself with it, to build up this kingdom. Because being a Christian is not just fire insurance. It's not that I just look to God and say, save me. What I'm saying is, is that I see that you're the king, that you're that that heaven is where I'm meant to be. And so now we begin to bring the kingdom of heaven down. So it's one thing that I'm saved into it. I become a citizen of a new world, a citizen of a new kingdom. But that citizenship demands that now I promote that kingdom. And so it's no longer about building up my own little personal kingdom when I take wealth in as my idol. But it becomes a thing where now it's a river and I'm taking what I need and I'm sending the rest on and I'm building up the kingdom of God around me. So that now not only do I see the giver, but everyone else sees the giver. That's what he tells us true life is. True life is doing that. True life is taking the wealth that you've been given and using it to the benefit of everyone around you and being generous in good deeds. And that's what builds up the kingdom of heaven. So that now every pleasure in life you can enjoy to its fullest because you see what it is. Now you really enjoy your marriage. Now you really enjoy your children. You really enjoy your friends. You really enjoy the sunset, the music, the book you read, because you begin to see God in all of it, because that's what the way you were built. It's what you were meant for. And I'll, I'm going to close with the story 
uh, of two men that I met in a trip to China and that I hope does a good job of, of illustrating this principle of what it means of where our hopes to be truly put. Uh, when we go to China, what we do is it, it, the trip that we've taken the last three years is a businessman's uh, seminar. And what it's meant to do is draw in English-speaking Chinese that are sort of young and upwardly mobile to try and fi- you know, find and target people for the missionaries who are there to continue relationships with. Uh, so as we've gone over and done this, we, you know, we, we have like a little mixer before the seminar and we're all, you know, it's, I don't know what to compare it to. I guess like fraternity rush or something, you know, and you're, you're milling around and trying to make, make contacts and, 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 and talk to as many people as possible and write their names down. And, you know, and so as we were doing this, I'm trying to be the, you know, the good guy. And I see this younger looking guy over there and I couldn't find anyone else to talk to. So I start talking to him. And he begins to tell me about, uh, you know, some things that he's hoping for and that he wants to do in the future. And I was like, wow, you know, I've got a, I, there's a guy here that's in the same business you want to get involved in. I'd love for you to meet him. And so I pulled the, this other man in and um, we got to talking to him. And he was like, well, we would, you know, this, this is fantastic. Could, could, I, could I bring a, uh, my father with me to, to lunch? Could we all get together? And so you're like, you know, that's great. And so uh, he comes back and he says, well, uh, you know, my dad doesn't want to go where we were planning. Would it be okay if, if he hosts it? And uh, we said, sure. You know, so we show up at the nicest hotel in the city. And they usher us back into, like, the private rooms. And so we go into this room. It's sort of a long room, and, it, and it's, you know, pretty nicely decorated, but a long, narrow room. And at the end are, like, these big, you know, sort of burgundy chairs, you know, big plush chairs, and a little table in the middle with, like, with a microphone and, yeah, and it sort of looks like if you ever seen the pictures of where like Nixon goes and he's meeting with, uh, you know, and, and like dignitaries. And so we're thinking, wow, you know, what have we gotten into? And uh, I'm like, do they know I'm a plumber? And uh, so <laughs> maybe I said something wrong in Chinese, and they think anyway. So we're sitting there, and they, you know, they they come out and they're taking pictures, and we're all posing together and everything. And then we go and we sit in at this dinner. Uh, Brian Nern was with me he, it, anyway. So we're at this, we, we sit down to this meal and it's this huge round table and it's like everything you ever think about when you think about a big Chinese dinner, you know, and, and uh, so this is huge round table and just food everywhere and, uh, and, and not like Chinese food like you're getting down at, you know, wherever, Formosa. It's, it's like Chinese food like you've never seen before in your life and you couldn't identify any ingredient on the whole table and, uh, and it's supposed to be the top of the line stuff, you know, it's emerald or whatever. So... We're, uh, you know, we begin to have dinner, and there's, there's all the glasses around, and they've got some kind of wine or whatever, and he begins to propose a toast to us through his translator. And so, you know, he toasts us, you know, like for China and America to be friends and, you know, this bridging of the cultures and everything. And, and you know, and so Brian toasts back. And Brian, i got to tell you, if you, you need to see Brian in his glory exchanging toasts. We got through like 12 toasts. We're toasting each other's wives, and, you know, it was crazy. And so... We're putting on the dog. I mean, this, you know, big banquet, the, you know, the, all the formality. And, and, and I want to tell you that this guy is phenomenally nice guy. No telling what he's dropping on lunch. And I, this is not to say anything negative about him. He's a, and we, as we find out about this guy, we find he's just this wonderful guy. He's done everything you could ever imagine. Written books, you know, taught at a university, whatever. Now he's got this big, powerful position. And so as we, you know, we're sitting there and, and we're just kind of looking around like, can you believe we're doing this? It's crazy. And um, so we get to know him a little bit, and uh, then we leave there, and the next day, unfortunately, we watch Memphis play Kansas uh, on the Internet, 
And, uh, you know, so we go from, from the heights of excitement to the depths, and, uh, and we're all depressed. And the next thing we're to go to do right after we've just watched the Tigers lose the national championship um, is to go see the home that our driver lives in. And it turns out that our, dri- our little van driver is a Christian and, uh, and the sweetest, dearest guy you've ever met in your whole life. I mean, just, you know, regardless of the language problems, you just knew. You, you just knew what was in his heart, and he was constantly serving us. Just all the little things that you take for granted, picking up luggage, bringing us something to drink, doing just any need he could try and address, he was right there. And so as we got to know him, we, you just, he was just one of these guys you couldn't help but love. And so we were going to go see where he lives. And so we go from the nicest hotel in the most private room with the biggest banquet in the city. And he takes us to his home and we go to this apartment complex. And it's, you know, imagine the typical communist concrete block, whatever, you know, this is what we were going into. And so we go in there and we go to his apartment and uh, three to four hundred square feet, would you say, Brian? about that tiny little apartment bare light bulb hanging out of the ceiling a bathroom about the size of a closet now in china it's a squatty potty and if you don't know about squatty potties i'll tell you about that later but just needless to say you're just holding it until you get somewhere else and uh (laughs) and you know a tiny little kitchen with the heater on the wall all this to say that you know needless to say, not the lifestyle that you and I are living right now. And he begins to tell us his story. And what we find out is, is that he has an eight-year-old daughter and he's been allowed to have a second child, but the second child has a heart condition and it's going to require surgery. And they basically told him, why bother? Let her die. Have another child. But he wanted to, he wanted to give this, you know, being a Christian, he understood the dignity of the life that was in front of him. So he wants, he wants to try and get the surgery and let her live. And what we find out is, is that what we find out is that he had saved up some money because they knew this was coming. And a friend of his was in a motorcycle accident. And in China, you don't get medical treatment unless you provide cash on hand. So he, we find out that he's given away you know, all the cash, all the money he's got to help save his friend. So now he's broke. He's got a baby that needs surgery. And we find out the surgery is going to cost $15,000. And we also find out that he makes $7,500 a year. So two years' salary to get this child the surgery that she needs, and they aren't going to give it to him without the money. And as we've come to find out, even if he has it, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. And what we were struck by as we looked around his apartment were all these pictures that he had, you know, like that his daughter had colored in Sunday school class. And uh, as we looked around the room, and, you know, here we'd been to this big banquet, and on the table he had a little bowl of fruit and a bottle of Coke and a bottle of Sprite and some flowers. You know, because that was the best he had to offer us. And as we sat there, for one, it made me feel really stupid about feeling so lousy about watching the Tigers get beat. By the way, if your favorite team gets beat, I, I highly recommend this as therapy to getting your perspective back in order. You know, here was a guy who, by our standards, we'd be looking around, you know, just, you know, the child's sick, and we'd be saying, why do bad things happen to good people? We'd be griping at God. We'd be asking him, how could you do this to me? Don't you know? I want to serve you. Don't you see what you're doing to me? And yet what his response to it all was, was just thankfulness. We're so thankful for our daughter. We're so thankful for the ways that God's provided for us, the things that he's given us. 
we came away floored. Because by the world's eyes, this guy's got nothing to be thankful for. And yet, in his eyes, he's the most blessed man around. And so as we came away, the, the, the way that we were looking at it and, the, and, and what stayed with me ever since was is that in the world's eyes, if you were to put, you know, do a movie of these two guys' lives, everybody's going to pick the wealthy guys. Everyone's saying, that's the life I want to live. Go to the best hotel, eat the best food. You know, he's got everything. He's got power. He's got uh, authority. He's well-educated. He's got a beautiful family. He's got it all. And I'm telling you, this guy's a great guy. This is not a comment on him. But you know what the one thing he doesn't have is he doesn't have a knowledge of who gave it to him. Not yet. And Mr. Lee knew exactly what he'd been given. He knew exactly who'd given it to him. He knew that he had a God that loved him so much that he poured out the greatest gift he could ever give him. That he took his son. Here's his daughter. And, you know, from the world's eyes, they're saying, why would God be that way? And God says, I know exactly why I'm that way. I know what it means to lose a child because I've given my child for this man. And so what he's doing is he is living this life with an eye on the future. He's laying up a foundation for where he's going to be. You know, Sandy talked about a couple of weeks ago, I think, about them asking the guy why he lived in a tent. And said he said he was because he was just passing through. That's the mentality when we understand there's nothing we take with us, so everything is building up this kingdom of God that's going to come, to, that's going to come down. That, that's the way that this bus driver is living his life. He's living in, in view of, of God and of who God is. and not, He's not questioning God. He's just being thankful for what he's been given and living it out in front of him. And so I think the idea for us, and when we ask what is the meaning of wealth, what we've got to do is we've got to, got to look at these two lives and we've got to begin to say, that's the man I want to be. He's the rich one. And until we begin to see those two extremes and see the poor man is truly the rich man because of who he knows and because how he's living his life, then we've totally lost sight of what it means. We'll never be able to be stewards of what we've been given. We're never going to be able to look at our money and say it's a river and not a reservoir. We're never going to know. I'm going to tell you, this guy knew a peace and a joy and a contentment that was that was just swirling around him so much he felt like he'd reach out and touch it. He knew it in a way that I don't because I've gotten caught up in what the culture's told me my wealth is for. And I've allowed it to, to let me put my hope in things that, that just aren't worthy of that. And so the, what I want to leave you with this morning is just to say, as we look through what the teacher's telling us here, he's showing you a picture of what it means to put your hope in any other thing than God. And so we need to just step back for a minute and ask ourselves, just how do we do that? What does it mean as we challenge each other, as we come together and sit at these tables, how do we challenge each other as men to really begin to put our hope in God in a way that we've never done it before, in a way that changes how we live, how we, how we make our money, and how we use our money? And I'll close this there. Thank you. Lord, we're thankful that you've given us the one gift beyond all measure, the thing that we could never buy on our own, the thing that we could never learn enough to achieve, that we could never accumulate enough, we could never work hard enough to earn. And yet you've given us that great gift anyway. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live our entire lives in view uh, of that gift and of the giver, um, that we would see how you've made us and that we would live our lives uh, spilled out before you. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You did that because my dad's here. <laughs>